Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat for this time that you've given us to gather together as Mishpacha's family to worship before you. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives that it will be your word heard, your voice received, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you've ordained for this purpose. Father, breathe new life into us today as we dig into the Parsha and let us leave this place changed, different than the way we came in, ready to impact the world for your kingdom. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachim. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. All right, so this week we're in Parsha Vayishlach. Uh, Parsha Vayishlach is Genesis 32.4 through 36.43. We pick up with the continuation of Jacob's journey uh, as he is now on his way from uh, Haran back to uh, the, the promised land, back to the land of Canaan, uh, and he is journeying back to what he knows to be the inevitable encounter or re-encounter with his brother Esau, who he has um, uh, rather conveniently burned the bridge with a couple of times. Um, and so, as you remember, last week we read about him journeying to Haran to run away from Esau, to run away from the promised land. Uh, and what was really interesting, I think, about that was that he was running and, uh, and constantly was looking behind him out of expectation that Esau or, or a dignitary of Esau was going to come up behind him and kill him. This week we see him finally, 20, 21 years later, making his way back to the promised land, back to return to the promises uh, of the covenant of the God of his forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, which has already been reiterated as a covenant made between Adonai and Jacob himself. And so now we're on this journey back to the promised land, and this is where we pick up verse 10 in Genesis 32. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up there. Genesis 32, beginning with verse 10. It says, Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Adonai, who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives, and I will do good with you. I am unworthy of all the proofs of, your, of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed over this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Deliver me, please, from my brother's hand, from Esau's hand, for I'm afraid of, what, uh, of him that he'll come and strike me, the mothers with the children." You yourself said, I will most certainly do good with you and will make your seed like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted because of its abundance. So if you remember last week, uh, Jacob's uh, journeying and he has this encounter with God. And after he has this encounter with God, he cries out and says, Lord, if you do all of this stuff you said you're going to do for me, then I will follow you. Then I will make you my God, which is kind of the, the counter of Second, Second Chronicles 7.14, right? Where God says, if you do what you're supposed to do, then I will return that blessing. 
Here he makes the, the opposite and says, if you do everything you say you're going to do and you bring me back here to my father's land or to the land that you promised to my father, then I will serve you. And so now he's actually on his way back. He's there in the midst of Canaan and he's prepping himself for what he knows to be this inevitable encounter with uh, Esau. In particular, he's prepping himself because he sends uh, a couple of, of forerunners ahead of him to go meet with Esau to say, hey, your brother Jacob's coming to see you. Look, he's got all of this stuff, like the Lord's really blessed him. He's really sorry for burning the bridge with you. He's really sorry for hurting you and, and, and doing all the stuff to, that he did to you. So he's willing to come back as your servant. And I'm paraphrasing the whole thing here. But, uh, and, and then they come back and go, hey, Jacob, hey, great news, great news. We met with Esau and Esau's coming to meet you too. He's in a hurry to come meet you. <laughs> yeah. Also, he's got 400 dudes with him. And Esau's going, what? <laughs> uh, I don't really know what to... Uh, Okay, and so he splits his camp apart into two separate families, and you again see the favoritism, and he's got Leah and her kids in one side, and Rebecca and her kids in another, and, uh, and what have you, and his thought is, is all right, well, if, if Esau attacks and he slaughters the family I don't really care about, then the family I do care about will stay, will stay behind and be all right. At least they can get away. Um, again, paraphrasing, he doesn't really word it that way, but that's just the way I read it in the modern world. Um, but as all of this is going on, we see this whole uh, interaction. And so he, he stops and he cries out to the Lord and he says, Lord, I should have listened to you in the first place. I, I recognize I've done this all backwards, but listen, here we are. Doesn't matter what I've done before. Here we are. Alas, we found ourselves in the exact spot you said we would. Uh, and you know what? I really don't deserve everything you've done for me. Uh, he says, I, verse 11, I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant." For with only this, my staff, I crossed over this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. He says, you know what, God? I really didn't deserve any of this. Even though I said, once you do everything, then I'll serve you, you shouldn't have done any of it. Yet you did, and I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it. But, but you did, and here we are. And Lord, you know what? Please, just this one final time, protect me. And he reiterates the words of the Lord in verse 13. You yourself said, I will most certainly do good with you. And will make your seed like the sand of the seas that cannot be counted because of its abundance. And he reiterates the word of the Lord. See, what's interesting here with Jacob is he's worried about the past, right? In spite of everything he's already gone through, in spite of everything that he's experienced, having uh, burned the bridge with his brother, having left his family's household, having ran from the promised land, from the promises of God to Haran, to uh, his family's, his extended family's land, having had this whole encounter with Laban where he was stuck there for 20 years and constantly getting burned left and right, constantly getting messed over, here he is finally recognizing where he is, what the Lord has done, yet he's still worried about the past. Here he is in the literal promises of God. The Lord said, look, I want you to go back to the land that I've promised you, back to the land that I told your father I would give, to the land I told your grandfather I would give, back to the promises of God. I know you ran from it, but I want you to come back. And as he's on his way back, he's still scared to death of what's lingering in the past, of everything that he's done before, of all the people that he's hurt, of all the lives that he's destroyed, of all of the bad seeds that he's sown in relationships and he's worried still that Esau and his 400 men are coming to kill him. He's worried that after 20 years of God doing everything he said he would do, that yet in the midst of God fulfilling the reality of his promise to Jacob, that somehow God was going to let Esau kill him anyways. 
And so he's worried about what has been rather than what the Lord has already promised. We move forward to verse 25 and we see this whole narrative with uh, he's, he sent his uh, family across the river and he's stayed behind to kind of to, to, to focus himself, to, to try and realign, to try and prepare himself for what's going to happen. And then ultimately he runs on ahead of his family to go meet Esau first. But verse 25 says, so Jacob remained all by himself. Then a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. When he saw that he had not overcome him, he struck the socket of his hip. So he dislocated the socket of Jacob's hip when he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for dawn is broken. But he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Then he said to him, what is your name? Jacob, he said. Then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Then Jacob asked and said, please tell me your name. But he said, what's this? You're asking my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob named that place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, and my life has been spared. See, within Judaism, the, the ancient tradition of understanding here is that Jacob wrestled with the spirit of the angel of Esau. Um, and one of the reasons that we have to kind of contort what's being said here to come up with that is because, generally speaking, within Judaism, uh, we don't have an allotment for a physical presence of God. There, there's not this idea of, okay, here's this physical embodiment of God. Granted, we see countless times of what we would call in theological terms theophanies or the, the visible re, uh, representation of, of God in, in this human form. For some reason in Judaism, we really don't allow for this, this opportunity to, to exist. And that's a whole other story as to why in another day's discussion. But nonetheless, here we've, we've created, we've concocted this whole side narrative of what's going on here rather than actually looking at the text itself. And I believe it's really important that we understand what's going on here because I believe this to have been yet another theophany as it was with Abraham when he went, met with Melchizedek, as it was with Abraham when he sat and ate with the, with the Lord and the two angels before uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And as we see in countless other places throughout Scripture, I believe that this was a theophany or what we would call in theolo theological terms today uh, a, a Christophany. A, a physical presence, a, a human encounter, if you would, with the visible image of God. Uh, Chronicles, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1.15 says that Yeshua is the visible image of the invisible God, right? So we have a body, we also have a spirit and a soul, so we have visible and invisible, and God has visible and invisible, and Yeshua is the visible image of, of the invisible God. And what's really interesting when we look at John and other places, we recognize that Yeshua just didn't suddenly pop on the scene in Matthew 1. Right? It wasn't like God went, I knew I forgot something. There should have been this whole Messiah thing. There should have been. No. Yeshua is God who was robed in flesh and dwelt among us, which means that Yeshua's phys physical being, his physical uh, visible image of the otherwise invisible God had to have already existed as well, especially considering we, as Genesis 1 says, are created in his image and likeness. Right, As the creation story says, we are created in his image and likeness, which means that Yeshua must have had a visible image already. And so I believe that these, what we call theophanies theologically throughout the Tanakh, throughout the Old Testament, are actually what the church would call a Christophany, a presence or a revelation of Yeshua post his resurrection, 
Uh, I believe that this was a, a Christophany, if you would, that this is Yeshua himself, the visible image of the invisible God, revealing himself pre-incarnate, before being born of a woman. This is the Lord himself revealing himself in a literal sense to Jacob. Now the question becomes if that's it, and it says that he couldn't break free from Jacob when they were wrestling, does that mean that Jacob really could overcome God? Not in the least. It's not a chance. In the same sense that I believe wholeheartedly Isaac could have climbed off that table if he wanted to, right? There's nothing that would have stopped him from if he wanted to get through, get out of the binding, if he wanted it, there's no way Abraham would have tied him down if he didn't let it happen. And the same is true here. The Lord was trying to teach Jacob something. And I believe that this was an encounter with the visible image of the invisible God and that he wrestled with him and that uh, the Lord was trying to reveal something to him, trying to show him something. And yet here in verse 29, he says, then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob. This is the blessing that Jacob asks for. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and you have overcome. Then Jacob asked and said, please tell me your name. But he said, what is this? You are asking my name. In other words, he's saying, you don't know who I am. You don't know who I am. And Jacob immediately understood what was being said in verse 31. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face and my life has been spared. He's had this encounter with God. Now he's had this name change the first of two times in this Parsha that we see the official name change from Yaakov, from Jacob to Israel to Israel. Uh, and this is the first time, but yet just like in previous times with Jacob, he wasn't quite certain. He had this phenomenal encounter with the Lord, but he wasn't, he wasn't quite certain that the Lord was truly doing what he, he said he would do for him. So we go to chapter 35, verse 1. This is after he's now had his encounter with Esau, and Esau runs up and kisses him on the cheek and welcomes him and, and all of this, which, by the way, if you pay attention, you'll, you'll notice they never really reunited. Right? Esau wanted him to come back to the family property. He wanted him to come back to where he lived. And Jacob went, yo, look. Uh, all my kids are too little. They can't make that journey that quick. So how about we catch up with you? You go ahead. We'll catch up with you. And Esau's like, all right, cool. We'll do that. So he runs off. And I imagine Esau's back at home preparing this welcoming feast for him, this party to welcome his brother back. And Jacob cuts a hard right and goes out to a whole other part. He goes out to Shechem instead of going back to where Esau was. And so I wonder if perhaps the some of the family feud that are, are generations upon generations upon generations of the history of Israel and the Jewish people have experienced doesn't come from the reality that Jacob never fully reunited as he should have with Esau. Verse 31, uh, chapter 35, verse 1 says, Then Jacob said to, I'm sorry, God said to Jacob, uh, this is after he's now encountered Esau and they've separated, his, his life has been spared. Get up, go up to Beit El and stay there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Notice he doesn't say make an offering to the God or an altar to the God who you met in, in when you wrestled or who you heard the voice from calling you back. He says specifically to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Same God, but he's making him think about something from the very beginning. And he goes to verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to everyone who was with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Cleanse yourselves and change your clothes. Now let's go up. Uh, let's get up and go up to Bethel so that I can make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way that I have gone. Now all of a sudden the trigger is switched. All of a sudden, Jacob is starting to have a true change of heart. 
to who the Lord is, to who uh, the, the God of his father Abraham, the God of his father Isaac really is. Verse 4, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods in their, their hand and the rings in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak tree near Shechem. Then they journeyed, and the terror of God was on the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue Jacob's sons. Notice on the journey from the promised land to Haran, we don't read a line similar to this. He does make it to Haran in safety. But on his way back to the promise of God, on his way back to meet with God at Beit El, which, by the way, is the same place we talked about last week, where he rested and laid his head upon a stone uh, to go to sleep, used the stone as his pillow, and that we, we recognize to be historically the same place that the temple was built in the Mount of Olives stood, which is Mount Zion, uh, where Abraham uh, was prepared to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And so they, they give up all of their foreign gods, they hand them all over, and at this point, Jacob has made a life decision. The God of my forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac is going to be my God. He's going to be the God of my family. And I'm going to put everything I have into serving him. And here, all of his family gets on board. And he just runs through his, his household. Every foreign God you have, get rid of it now. Go cleanse yourself and change clothes. Put on the garments of righteousness so that we can go serve the Lord most high. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name was Jacob. No longer will your name be Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am the God Almighty or the, the Almighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and an assembly of nations will come from you. From your loins will come forth kings. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I give it to you and to your seed after you. I will give the land. So now he's reiterated this covenant that has already been given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's reiterating this covenant yet again with Jacob. This time around, he's reminded Jacob of the name change of blessing that he gave him. You're no longer a trickster. You're no longer one who, who, who uh, uh, tries to constantly burn bridges to gain what you want, who's trying to, pardon me for saying, but trying to screw other people over to get what you really want. You're now one who is of God. Israel means one who's wrestled with God. And I don't think it's an idea just of him literally wrestling in this dream that he had. But it's this idea of this back and forth battle that we as humanity who breathe the breath of life have in our effort to try and actually serve the Lord. There's always this, this back and forth as sinful fallen people of, okay, I'm going to give God my all. Oh, look, squirrel. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. I'm going to give God my all. Oh, squirrel. And it's this constant back and forth wrestle. It's not that he wrestles with God, but he wrestles with his faith in walking with God. And the reality is, is you and I do the same thing all the time, day in and day out. We aren't wrestling with God himself or even with our belief in who God is, but we're wrestling with our faith in our walk with God. We're wrestling with who we know we should be and who we have been. Who the Lord has made us and who we made ourselves. And see, here's the beauty of Jacob's name change, is it took the second time before it really sunk in. The first time that, that it was spoken to him, it didn't sink in, he didn't take it to heart, it didn't, it didn't really buy into him, he didn't buy into it. But the second time, it clicked. The second time it became a part of who he is. See, this whole Parsha and really the whole narrative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in particular the, the journey, the narrative of the journey of Jacob is about identity. It's all about identity. See, Jacob had a struggle with identity. Is he going to be who he was named by his parents for being? 
Or is he going to be the one who God has renamed? Is he going to be the one that's a trickster that's going to try and get everything on his own power? Or is he going to be the one that will trust in God to bring about the blessings and the promises that his covenant has spoken? It's all about identity. And so as we look at this, we recognize that there were two different times that his name was changed in the Parsha or that the name change was, was brought up. First was when he wrestles with God or with, with, with the angel, as we saw there, and, then, and it didn't really stick. He didn't really take it. The second was here at Beit El when he's encountered God on his journey back. He's now had this whole uh, uh, thing where he's cleared his household and his family of all these foreign gods, and he's wholeheartedly given his life to the Lord. Now he's encountered with the Lord. And the Lord has now again reiterated this name change. And so it took both times for him to truly realize the reality of the identity the Lord was giving him. Because his mind was still stuck in the identity of his past. I'm going to do everything in my power to get everything I want. And the Lord's identity for him was no. I'm going to do everything in my power to give you everything I want. Not what you want, but what I want. After the first, he was still worried about what would happen because of his past. Right? So he wrestles with the, the Lord in, uh, in, in that dream that he had, and as he's wrestling with the Lord, he's running still from the reality of what he knows, he thinks he knows is awaiting him, which is death by the hand of his brother or any of the 400 men that are with him. He's scared to death that he's going to die, not because he's done anything recently to earn that, but because he knows his brother's mad at him from what he did before. And so he's hung up with this idea of his identity, be buried, identity being buried in his past and the mistakes that he's made. But after the, the second time, after the second time, he's now realized not only the fullness of the blessing of God because God has provided, God has grown his household, God has grown his, uh, his earthly wealth, if you would. And not only that, but God has fulfilled his promise in bringing him back to the promised land. So now he's seen the fullness of the promise of God and now he's seen the mercy of God and allowing him to live after he re-encounters his brother Esau, who he has burned and burned and burned. And so we recognize that it took a little while for that identity to set in, for him to recognize who God has called him to be. We go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 says, Therefore keep in mind that once you Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcised by those called circumcised which is performed on the flesh by hand. At that time, you were separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah, for he is our shalom, our peace, the one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation. Within his flesh, he has made powerless the hostility, the law code of mitzvot contained in regulations. He did this in order to create within himself one new man from the two groups, making shalom, making peace, and to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. And he came and proclaimed shalom to you who were far away and shalom to those who were near. That's both the nations brought in by the blood of Messiah and those of Israel brought in by the blood of Messiah. For through him, we both have access to the Father and by the same Ruach. 
So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You have been built on foundation made up of the emissaries and prophets with Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple for the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into God's dwelling place in the Ruach. And listen, this isn't just a message for Gentiles, for those of the nations. This is a message for Israel too for the Jewish people. We are not simply what we used to be. We have been made new and restored in Messiah. Our identity is not in whether we were fallen by sin. Our identity is not in whether we wrote off the Messiah because we were Jewish and that's what Jews do. Our identity is not in we were Gentiles that didn't care at all about the Jewish Messiah that served whatever pagan gods there were all over the world at that day. But instead, our identity is in who we are now, founded in the blood of Messiah being made into one body, being made into one man, one new man, Jew and Gentile, coming together as one in Messiah Yeshua. And so often, especially in the body of Messiah today, when we have, in fact, these divisions, we don't see the reality of what God is trying to do in unity in Him, in the body of Messiah. We go to 1 Peter 2, verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 4, says, uh, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and pre precious, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. And we skip down to verse nine, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. He's quoting from the prophet Hosea, who the Lord led to name his children these names, not my people, and, uh, and, and uh, no mercy, have shown no mercy. And yet the Lord has redeemed and restored us just as he changed the name of Hosea's children and made them his people and, uh, and those who have been shown mercy. He has made us like Hosea's children. He has made us like Jacob. He has changed our identity. Our identity is not in the, the dirt bag we used to be riled up in sin. Our identity is not in who we were before Messiah. Our identity is not in who the world wants us to be. Our identity is not in our political affiliations. It's not in our denominational affiliations. Our identity is not in our opinions. Our identity is in Messiah. And the problem is what causes so much division, what allows so much division to exist in the body of Messiah, as it did with Jacob and Esau, with that rift never truly being healed because humans were involved, what allows so much division is that we get hung up and all the things that we think should be our identity, as opposed to coming together in the one thing that truly is, the one thing that truly should be. We go to Colossians 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and hostile in your attitude by wicked deeds, but now he has reconciled you in Messiah's physical body through death in order to present you holy, spotless, and blameless in, your eye, in his eyes. You can't be holy, spotless, and blameless if you're stuck in who you used to be pre-Messiah. You can't be holy, spotless, and blameless if you're stuck in the sinful ways that you walked in before. And by the way, as our Haftor, our Bruch HaDashah reading in our Torah service said, you know what, we're, we're called to separate ourselves, particularly it's talking about those of uh, uh, sexual immorality, and he says very blatantly, and I'm not talking about the world's type of sexual morality, right? So I'm talking about what may exist within your own body. Rid the community of it. He says, look, you can't, the, the world's going to be the world. 
You can't change them until they see Messiah in you and what he can do in their lives. You can't cut yourself off from the world because if you cut yourself off from the world, then you're never going to reach them. If we become insular communities shut off from the world around us, they're never going to see who we are in Messiah and who Messiah wants them to be in him. Verse 22 of Colossians 1, we pick up, but now he has reconciled you in Messiah's physical body through death in order to present you holy, spotless, and blameless in his eyes, if indeed you continue in the faith, established and firm, not budging from the hope of the good news that you have heard. This good news has been proclaimed throughout all creation under heaven and earth, and I, Paul, have become its servant. Wrapping this out with John chapter 1, verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But whoever did receive him, those trusting in his name, to those he gave the right to become children of God. They were not born of a bloodline, nor of human desire, nor of man's will, but of God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We looked upon his glory, the glory of the one and only, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Messiah came to make us children of God, not children of the world, not children of sin, not children of disobedience, as we read in Paul's letters over and over again, but children of God, bought by the blood of the Lamb, made holy and righteous, made spotless and blameless for his purposes in the world around us. But if we live our lives tied to our identity of our past, rather than wholeheartedly sold out in our identity in God, our identity in Messiah, then we are robbing the reality of what the good news, the besorah of Messiah Yeshua wants to do through our lives and the world around us. We are robbing the world of the reality of unity. I truly believe that God's heart, his will for Jacob and Esau was to be reunited as one people. Without a doubt, the promise was spoken to go through Jacob, whether Jacob ever stole the birthright or the, the, the blessing from, uh, from Esau or not. God's word would have been true. Somehow or another, God would have worked it out. He doesn't need us to help him out in this situation. He didn't need Sarah going, hey, God didn't give me a kid, so here's my servant. Have one with her. And all the problems there. He didn't need us to go through uh, trying to force our way into the birthright and the promise. He didn't need us to do any of that. He didn't need you and I to do any of the number of things that we've messed up that he wanted to do for us. Any of the number of things that we messed up, he didn't need us to get our hands involved. You know what, if the Lord speaks promise to you, and by the way, his word is full of promise, so it doesn't even have to be audible voice. You hear God speak some majestic heavenly sound that takes you over, and yeah, none of that matters. It's in the word. The promise is spoken over you, and he doesn't need you to make it happen because he's already spoken into existence. Just as he spoke creation into existence in the first place, he just needs you to get out the way and let him use you the way he wants but we're so worried about our past and what people may think. We're so worried about what we've done to others or what others have done to us. We're so bogged down in the reality of the sins and the mistakes that we've made rather than the, the reality of the wholeness that God is wanting to make us. See, before he can make us holy, he's got to make us whole. And each and every one of us, especially in this day and age, in this mucked up world, each and every one of us are messed up. Each and every one of us have people in our lives that have damaged us, that have broken us, that have done things that we can't figure out how to get out from under. 
Each and every one of us, whether we want to admit it, have done the same thing to everyone else in our lives too. But the reality is, we serve a God whose loving kindness, whose mercy endures forever. And because of His grace and His mercy, you and I are no longer what we used to be. And our identity can never be rooted in that anymore. Because if it is, we damage the work that He wants to do through us. And how many lives would be robbed of the blessing of the reality of Messiah because we don't walk in the fullness of the reality of who we are and our identity in Him. So the question I want to ask you is, what is your identity? Is it who or what you were before Messiah as Jacob was so riled up in his identity as a trickster? Or is it who you are in Messiah as Jacob finally was a Bedel the second time around? when the Lord changed his name from Jacob to Israel. What is your identity? What identity are you going to live in and walk in and wholeheartedly buy into? Is it gonna be all the things that you let hold you down and hold you back? I joke a lot of times when I, when I wait at tables, and some of you have heard me say it uh, here too, joking around, uh, I, I've obviously and this isn't to brag, this is just to, to bring home a point. I've obviously lost uh, some weight in the last uh, uh, six months or so, nine months, whatever it is. And, uh, and when I was in restaurants and I was considerably larger than, than I am now, I used to always, I was known, you know, I mean, I'm sarcastic. It's just who I am. It's what I do. But, but I would walk, you know, in restaurants when you're walking out of the kitchen or you're walking around the kitchen, you let people know you're behind them so they don't run you over or, you know, stuff doesn't get spilled, trays don't get knocked over full of food or what have you. And so I would go behind people in the kitchen and go, hey, fat Jew coming behind you. Fat Jew coming through. I mean, I was, I was a big guy. I was a fat Jew. It worked. I can make it work. I could get away with it. You know, Joe Schmo down the street, maybe not, but I could pull it off. And, uh, and sometimes you'll hear me jokingly say that here. Uh, and I'm, I'm just using this as an example. I don't, I don't actually look at myself as that. But uh, just as an example, is you'll hear me say that. And, and often people will say, you're not, you're not fat, Rabbi. Come on. Look at You've lost so much. You're so much smaller. You're not fat. You can't say that anymore. And the reality is, is that's how we live our lives. Before Messiah, we were some awful people. I don't care who you are. Look, I know me. I know some of you had to have been at least somewhat close to as bad as I was, all right? I'm not going to give you credit to go beyond as bad as I was. Maybe you were. I don't know. I don't want to offend anybody. But the reality is, is we were all pretty messed up people before Messiah. Some of us after Messiah are still pretty messed up people. But the Lord wants to change that because our identity shouldn't be in who we were before him, but solely in who we are in him. It's not about the sins and the, the damage that we did before. It's not about the pain and the anguish we caused or have been uh, the recipient of. It's about the wholeness that God is doing in our lives, the restoration, the renewal, the redemption, the work of salvation that, by the way, we love to say, oh, we're saved. You know, I was saved on such and such a day. You know, you know what? We're, we're in a salvational process. Right? The, the scriptures make it very clear we're not saved till we make it past that judgment seat. Right? We can believe wholeheartedly without a doubt that if we're bought by the blood of the Lamb, we're good. No doubt about it. But it's a salvational process. It began the day we accepted the blood atonement of Messiah. It doesn't end until the day that we're in His kingdom, His eternal kingdom for eternity. And the moment we get weak on that is the moment that we change our identity away from who we are in Messiah. 
And unfortunately, far too often, we let ourselves get bogged down in that. We let ourselves get bogged down in the fake identity of who we think we should be. So we put on these big shows of what we think believers want to see, what we think believers are supposed to look like. Obviously, I don't do very well at that. But we put on these big shows at what believers are supposed to look like, while at the same time, we're really just pretty messed up still. And the only way we can change how messed up we are is when we recognize that the Lord wants to change our identity. He wants us to be whole, to be new, to be redeemed and restored in Him. He wants us to recognize our identity as children of God, not children of this world. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're battling with something, if you're battling with something from your past, you're battling with something that someone's done to you or you've done to, to, to them, whatever it may be, if it's something that is truly damaging the image and likeness that you are recreated in through the blood of Messiah, today is the day to lay that at his feet. Today is the day to walk away from that, to fall on our faces and recognize that we are a new creation we are part of a new man made new in him. And he wants you to understand that your identity, your true identity is in him. Not in the world, not in the people that have hurt you, not in the people that have broken you, not in the people that you have broken, but your identity is in him. I think the moment we recognize that and as the body of Messiah, especially within the Messianic Jewish movement's context in the body of Messiah, the moment we recognize that our identity is the most important reality, not our Jewish identity or identity as Gentiles aligned with Judaism or the Jewish people, but that our identity is a Messiah first. Everything else is subsequent. Our identity is a Messiah first. As soon as we recognize that, I truly believe that the world will change that the Jewish world will recognize the truth of Yeshua's Messiah. Because I know it's hard to believe, but if our identity is in the Jewish Messiah, it only makes common sense that our identity looks a little more Jewish. Just throwing that out there. So I want to encourage you this morning, or this afternoon, whatever it is at this point, don't let today be just another day that you let your past have a grip on your life. Don't let today be just another day that you don't find healing in the Lord. Don't let today be another day that your identity is marred because you're so worried about who you used to be and not who Messiah has made you new. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Lord, we thank you that your word rings true through and through no matter what. Father, I thank you that you are a loving and gracious God. Father, I thank you that you desire nothing more than to heal and restore our lives. That you desire nothing more than to restore the image and likeness in which we were originally created in our lives and our hearts. Not for our sake, but for yours. For your kingdom to be known and proclaimed in this world. Use us, Lord, as whole people, renewed and restored for the good of your kingdom and the glory of your name before all men. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.